First, uh, first of all, before we start, I want to apologise because you're stuck with me for nine weeks, apparently. So um, I'm sorry about that. Uh, forgive me. Um, I didn't want to do nine weeks, but uh, the actual um, topic that we're going to be discussing has got nine segments to it. So Marco, in his wisdom, said, well, then we go for nine weeks. Uh, so I apologise in advance that you're stuck with me for nine weeks, and I promise I'm not going to try to bore you too much. If you don't turn up next week, I promise I won't take it personally. <laughs> but, but try to uh, attend the whole series because it's, it actually connects and it's a very important topic. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, as you saw in the advertisement, we're talking about uh, pract practical spirituality. How to practice uh, spirituality uh, day in, day out in an easy and simple way. But to do that, we need to go back a bit. And you remember with me that in the book of Genesis, that it tells us that man was created in the image of God. And it's because of this tendency that we have towards God that we all seek something in our lives, and sometimes we find that there's a void, and we don't know what this void is. So when man was created in the image of God, he was also created in the likeness of God. And when we talk about the likeness of God, we're referring to the likeness of the goodness of God. So he's created in the likeness of the goodness of God, and of God, and of course God is the author of all goodness. But when our forefathers, Adam and Eve, fell into sin, human nature also became fallen. And sin... Um, was introduced into the human nature. So the human nature now has become corrupted. The significant change in man's uh, intellect was because of the sin that entered into the life of man. So this created being that was created in the image and likeness of God to seek the affinity of God has now become tarnished. And it's almost as if now there was a dual will that existed within man. There is a higher will that seeks God and wants to live with God. But there is also a lower will that seeks to self-gratify the person himself or herself. And this is where that fight starts to uh, become evident in the life of man. But sin also corrupted the human mind. And it also led to another duality, and that was duality of the law. So in other words, we have now the law of sin, because sin has reigned in the human nature, but also we have the natural law of goodness that man was created upon. And again, that gives rise to that conflict. And I suppose to sum it up, there's no better quotation than that of St. Paul. Listen to what he says, and he talks about it in almost a very frustrating way. He describes very well in Romans 7, 18 and 19, and he says the following. He says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. In other words, he's saying, I want to do good but it seems to be getting further and further away from me. And it's the very thing that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. You know, it's, it's that struggle. And you can see it's almost like a frustrating struggle uh, that St. Paul puts into words. 
But when our Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate and he took the form uh, of our flesh, he almost took on our weakness to raise that weakness to a different level. And he elevated that human fallen nature to its original state, the state of the image and likeness of God. And therefore, when he died upon the cross, it's as if he put end to any dominance of sin in our life. Again, this is theoretical, and we will go through how we actually are working towards going back to that image. So our Lord almost gave us a chance to fight back and to regain our original nature. And this was achieved through baptism. In other words, having been renewed in baptism and sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the Lord encourages us to seek perfection once more, even the perfection of the Father. This is why the Lord tells us, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now comes the practical side of things, because all that the Bible tells us what it is that we need to do, which is the perfection and eternal life, it does not actually tell us how to reach this perfection. And it leaves this process for each one of us. And this is why we are commanded in Scripture by St. Paul when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12 Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So how does one work out his or her own salvation? It's a very difficult thing. In the early years of the church, uh, Christians actually sought to work out their own salvation by offering the ultimate sacrifice. And that was martyrdom. When they offer their own life for the sake of Christ, this was their way of actually attaining salvation, the ultimate way of attaining salvation, or the ideal way of working out their own salvation. But when the era of persecution had ended, and when Constantine the Great, um, the emperor, he published his edict, which was to tolerate Christianity, and that was in the year 313 AD, Christians had to find another way of finding out how to work out their own salvation. So martyrdom wasn't as readily available to them as was in the earlier years. So many sought out actually another way of working out their salvation. Many sought the wilderness to work out their salvation. And these athletes of Christ, as we call them, went into into the wilderness and they wrestled with demons in order to attain uh, Christian perfection. And soon enough, monasticism almost replaced martyrdom as the ideal way of reaching uh, Christian perfection. And in doing so, these great athletes of Christ have done us a great favor. They've left us a huge body of writings about how to attain Christian perfection. The only problem is they had certain conditions that they had put for a person to reach that perfection. And when you read in the spirituality of the Desert Fathers, you find that there are two important characteristics of spirituality. The first one is that they insisted on discipleship. What does that mean? I'm not talking about discipleship as we know it now, which is a course that you go through in order to be able to serve in Sunday school or to be a minister in Sunday school. No, this is a different sort of discipleship. Anyone who sought after achieving the art of spirituality had to attach himself to what they call a master or an abba, an elder. Okay? 
And this wasn't an easy matter because these masters or these elders or these abbas, they were very stringent and they had very difficult qualifying exams for, for their candidates. Just as a, a passing example, we hear about the great Saint Bahumyos, Saint Pakon, that he was left begging and left to be ignored outside for three days and three nights out the cell of Saint Palamon before he was accepted to be a novice. Imagine three days left at the door of Saint Palamon, three days and three nights begging to be accepted just as a novice or as an apprentice. So the first thing, like I said, is that they sought uh, discipleship. They wanted discipleship. Secondly, and just as important a rule, they wanted to make void um, the person's reliance on himself or herself. You cannot rely on your own self or on your own judgment. The apprentice had to offer complete and blind obedience to the master or to the Abba, who assumed all the responsibility for training the novice. And these masters, like I said, they tested the obedience of their disciples in many ways that might seem very absurd to you and I nowadays. We all know, for example, about the master who gave his disciple the dry stick and said what? Plant it and water it. And out of obedience, of course, the novice did that. And of course, the obedience was not in vain, for after three years, the stick started to bud and to bring fruit. So they had to have complete and blind obedience. How does all this relate to us in the 21st century, which is very different to those days? Maybe the morals are different, although that's sort of debatable, but at least the challenges are different that we live in our day and in our world. The world is changing for the worse on a daily basis. So we need to borrow these methods that these early church fathers and desert fathers had and to apply them to our struggles that we face nowadays. And this is what this series is all about. <clears throat> this is what we are trying to achieve over the next nine weeks. And just as a warning, some of these exercises are not achievable. These desert fathers took tens of years to achieve some of these virtues. You and I might take hundreds of years to achieve these virtues. I'm not trying to put anyone down or to make us lose hope, but I'm saying this as a, as a reality check to ourselves. And that's why it's important that any of these virtues that you want to practice, they must be under the guidance of your confession father. It's very important. So we will discuss together um, you know, things like um, the discipline of the mind, the discipline of the will, uh, the discipline of the senses, the discipline of the memory, the imagination. We will look at things as um, like presumptuous sins or hidden sins. We will look at how to actually uh, pursue virtues. And we will also look at three virtues to conclude the series with, which is meekness, chastity, and discernment. So you can see it's a full series of how to actually achieve uh, this practical spirituality. And today we'll be taking that first part, the discipline of the mind. And right at the onset, um, you need to take away with you two points tonight and try to practice this during this week. Firstly, you need to protect your mind from harmful and unprofitable knowledge. Simple. 
protect your mind from harmful and unprofitable um, knowledge. And the second step is that you need to plant in your mind spiritual knowledge. Okay, so it's emptying of harmful and unprofitable knowledge and filling the mind with spiritual knowledge. Let's look at these uh, in a bit more detail. Unprofitable knowledge. The early fathers tell us that if you want to pursue Christian perfection, we have to protect our mind from the information that is unprofitable to our souls. And there's a lot in this day and age. We live in an age where there's so much information and the world is offering it to us like never before. And that actually, a lot of the time, uh, leads to um, pollution of the mind with useless information. And we will look at that a bit more in detail. And today we have information junkies who just want to seek information, not to improve their efficiency or to improve their life, but actually information for the sake of having that information, just for knowing that information. You know, everybody wants to tell everybody else where they are, where they've checked in, what they're eating, um, you know, and even as soon as you open your Facebook or you open any social media, assist you, what's on your mind, Macarius? Once you prompts you to share your inner thoughts, your personal information with others. That's reality, isn't it? That's what we live in. You know, how many times have you seen your friends? You know which restaurant they are. They take a picture of their food and, pay, <laughs> and post it, so you know what they're eating. You know almost intricate details about people. Information age. But I want you to compare this with what St. Paul says. Listen to what he writes in his epistle, first epistle of the Corinthians, chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, For I am determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How does that compare with what we're going through? It's incredible. For I am determined not to know anything among you <coughs> Accept Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is all he wants to know. And the wise man of old in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says to us, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So the first example I want to share with you of unprofitable knowledge is actually excessive watching of news. It's good, of course, to know uh, what is happening in the world around us, but to be obsessed about knowing the intricate details about all matters or most matters that is happening everywhere around the world, this is actually going to affect our Christian perfection pursuit, believe it or not. TV and radio stations now, um, knowing the insatiable appetite that people have for news have, have done 24 hours a day news channels, both uh, radio and television, because they know that this is what people want to know. So if you want to take a little exercise with you, try to practice during your fasts of Wednesdays and Fridays, just even for this week coming, maybe on Wednesday and Friday, just to avoid listening to any radio. Avoid listening to the news. Avoid reading magazines. You know what will happen? It will actually free the mind, and you'll actually find that your mind will function much better when you 
um, do away with these things, even if it's for a short period of time. Some people actually practice this in every fast that the church observes. So, for example, in Great Lent, they might go for the whole 55 days without watching television or watching any news or reading any newspapers or magazines and so forth. There's a beautiful story about a monk who was sitting and was chatting with other monks. And then after they had finished chatting, he went to his cell. And as he went to his cell, another monk saw this monk going around his cell a number of times revolving around the cell. And he thought this was a strange thing. Why is this monk going around and around in his cell and not entering into his cell? So he went to him and he said, um, what are you doing? And the monk answered and said, I am getting rid of all worldly talk we were talking about because I do not want to bring it into my cell with me. You see, when we are occupied with all these things around us, it takes away from our Christian perfection pursuit. It takes away from the good that we can actually store and take on in our lives. There is also another example of unprofitable knowledge, and that is um, idle curiosity. It's seeking information about many things for the sole purpose of being knowledgeable. And how can this hurt me? Well, the Church Fathers say that this is actually a form of gluttony. It's a gluttony for knowledge. Not gluttony of food, but gluttony of knowledge. And this can lead to a lot of problems. It can lead to, to the person thinking uh, of himself or herself more highly than others, because they think they know more than others. And this can lead to pride and arrogance, of course. It can lead the person to become very talkative, because they want to parade all the knowledge that they have in front of others. And one of the saints, Theophan, Theophan, the recluse, he tells us that ultimately then our mind becomes an idol that we worship. And of course, idol worship is forbidden. So we ultimately become opinionated. We refuse to consult or accept advice from others because we know it all. I'm better than others. And this leads to pride of mind, which makes us depend on ourselves, even in some spiritual matters, which is quite dangerous. So I run by my own understanding where a scripture says, lean not on your own understanding. So this could be very dangerous for the person who wants to reach Christian perfection. But if you want to follow after Christian perfection, we need to wean our minds from this addiction to knowledge. Listen to what St. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. He says, If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Again, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness, is foolishness with God. What does this mean? It means that spiritual wisdom and worldly wisdom do not go hand in hand. And people actually who seek after uh, the wisdom of this world um, in an excessive way can actually end up being atheists because they, they are puffed up by their own knowledge or by their own conceited minds and they deny God who created that mind, who created their own mind. 
And of these, St. Paul warns his disciple Timothy in his first epistle, chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says to him, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Something they have, some think they have knowledge, but they actually, uh, this earthly knowledge has taken them away from the faith. We also read in Psalm 73, where David the prophet says, I was so foolish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand, you will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. In other words, this means here that the person who becomes foolish in front of God, this is the person who becomes wise. It means that if I declare my own foolishness before God, he will actually hold me by my right hand, he will guide me with his counsel, and afterward receive me into glory. It's only when I admit before God that I am foolish, that's when his wisdom starts to uh, take effect in my life. If I admit that I am wise, God says, well, stay with your own wisdom. Let's see where your own wisdom will lead you. Lean not on your own understanding. So if I declare my foolishness before God, he will take me by my right hand, he will guide me with his own counsel, and afterward he will receive me to glory. So I suppose people who have a very strong curiosity that just want to know, I want to have a look, I want to make sure that they are up to date with all this knowledge and all this information, become a bit like Lot's wife. You remember Lot's wife? What did she do? She was very curious about what was happening to Sodom and Gomorrah and she turned around even though they were warned and said, do not turn around, do not look at the city, flee for your, li- flee for your life, but yet curiosity led Lot's wife to perish. And this is what we're told by the Lord himself in the Gospel of St. Luke. The Lord was talking about the end of times. He says, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. That's the verse, or the two verses. In other words, here the Lord is saying that in the end of time, when the Antichrist come, do not be occupied with wanting to know what wonders he's working and what wonders he's doing. Do not look at that. No, remain focused on your Christ. Otherwise, you become like Lot's wife. So we have spoken about unprofitable knowledge. What about harmful knowledge? There's plenty of that around as well. I suppose um, the, uh, the obsession with knowing things about other people or what the Bible calls as a, you know, as a person who's a busybody is very harmful. And we are told this by our teacher, St. Peter, in his first epistle. And look how he... Um, He compares a busybody with some other things. It's incredible. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. He's classifying a busybody with a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. That's scary. A busybody is compared to a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. 
So I suppose really obsession about knowing the, affair, the affairs of others um, becomes the root of all gossip. And the devil will convince us that we want to know these things before, because we want to help this person. But you know, I don't need to know the intricate matters about a person to help a person. For example, I can pray for a person who is sick without asking them about what their illness is or prying into their private um, you know, illness that they're going through. I can congratulate a person who's got a new job without asking them what's their salary. <laughs> you know, I can help somebody move into their new home without asking them how much do you pay for it. You know, I don't need to get into intricate details with people in order to help them. And I suppose this is an issue or a problem, particularly with young people these days. They are obsessed by the secrets of their friends. If you tell me your secret, I'll tell you mine. If you don't tell me your secret, then I won't tell you mine. And if you don't tell me your secret, you're not my friend. Obviously, you don't trust me. We hear that a lot. But it's sad. And some people even complain and they say, you know, Abuna, Sometimes I have to actually lie to people in order to um, not to tell them my personal affairs. But the response to that is simple, and the answer to that is simple. Don't lie. Simply tell people, this is personal. I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer this. This is personal. And if they get upset and don't want to talk to you anymore, well, don't worry, because true friends, I suppose, have to respect the privacy of their friends rather than insist on knowing their secrets. It's as simple as that. Okay, let's go now to something a bit more positive. Let's have a look at spiritual knowledge. And by spiritual knowledge, um, we have to go back to Scripture and to what the Bible actually tells us. We all read our Bible. We all memorize verses. We're all very good at that, and we've all got it at our fingertips nowadays with the technology that we have. But we sometimes neglect to implant, to implant these spiritual principles uh, that the verses contain in our minds. Have a look at what the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verses 6 to 9 says. This is God speaking to his people. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is what God requires from us about his words. In other words, um, we have to assimilate all the words that are given to us in Scripture and imprint them in our minds and in our hearts until they become, until they become part of our thought process. I'm not sure if that's a sign or not. So. <laughs> Even the microphone can't put up with me for one week, <laughs> let alone nine. <laughs> In other words, we have to assimilate all these words that we read and imprint them in our hearts and in our minds till they become part of our life. They become part of the process of life. 
So it's almost no longer that I need to think of what the commandment of God is. No, I just do it. It's part of me. I'm part of it. Okay? And here are some examples from Scripture. The Bible tells us, for example, in Luke 6.26, he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And again in Luke 6, 22 and 23, it says, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. According to these verses, to be despised is actually more blessed than to be praised. Isn't that what Scripture is saying? But do we actually do that? Is this imprinted in our minds? Is this implanted in our minds that when people praise me that it's actually dangerous for my spiritual perfection? But actually when they despise me and say evil things against me falsely, I'm actually blessed. There's a beautiful story about um, one of the late bishops. His name was Bishop Ioannis. Those of you that... I may be familiar with Egypt and the provinces there. He was the Bishop of Gharbiya, the late Bishop Johannes of Gharbiya. And um, he used to go every Thursday to preach in a nearby village. So his service was that he had to go by cab in order to preach in his village. And it was usual in Egypt that if you take a cab that you share with other people. So there's other, you know, it's almost like um, carpooling. And it happened that... Um, you know, this fanatic Muslim knew what time that Bishop Yohannes would take the cab. So he'd made sure that he would be there in the cab waiting for him. And as soon as Bishop Yohannes would enter into the cab, this fanatic Muslim would turn to the other side and actually spit in disgust. He's, he just can't stand the bishop. But then one day, and this went on for years and years and years, and then one day when the bishop went into the taxi, that man was not there. And the bishop actually records and tells his story that he was grieved in his heart and he started complaining to God and saying, why did you deprive me of this blessing, Lord? Is it on account of my sins that you decided that I'm not worthy of this blessing? When he was despised, he felt that he was blessed, but if he was to be praised, then he would find that that blessing is not there. And we find that this theme actually amongst the fathers, they took great extent in training to accept insults um, and to reject praise in a very serious way. And the book of the Paradise of the Fathers actually tells us some incredible stories in that regards. Let me share with you two wonderful stories in that regards. Abba Macarius told his novice disciple to go and insult the dead. So out of obedience, the novice went to the graveyard and started to shout insults at the dead for the whole day. The next day, Abba Macarius told him, go and praise the dead. He went to the graveyard and started uh, heaping praise on the dead. And when he came back in the evening, his master asked him, when you insulted the dead, did they feel it? He said, no. And again, he asked him, he said, when you praised the dead, did they feel it? He answered, no. And the old man said to the novice, he said, go and be like this. Go and be like this. Don't let words of praise affect you. Don't let words of insult affect you, except take the blessing that comes with the insult. 
And the other story is actually quite fascinating. It talks about a rich young man who left all his riches and left his rich family and went into a monastery to become a monk. And his Abba, his master, would train him. He said to him, you need to train yourself in accepting insults with joy. That was the practice that was given to the novice. <clears throat> but this novice looked around him and there was no one to insult him in the monastery. They're all holy people. They're all saintly people. There's no one to insult him. So he went to the village and hired a man to come to the monastery to insult him and paid him money to do this until he got very well trained in accepting insults with joy. But one day this monk, amongst other monks, they went into the city to finish some work for the monastery and then a madman came and started hurling insults at him. And the monk started to laugh out aloud. And the other monk said to him, why are you laughing? He's insulting you. He said, I used to pay for this and now I'm getting it for free. (laughs) That's how much that they were willing to be trained to that extent. It's an incredible story. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2, verse 15, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again in James 4.4 we read, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Have we implanted this in our minds? The way to perfection is despising the world and all the things of the world. Is that what we do? Is this implanted in our mind? Have a look at another example. St. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, he says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. St. Paul here is basically saying that I'd rather lose everything to gain the knowledge of Christ And I consider all these things of the world as rubbish, garbage. Have we implanted this in our hearts? The world is a big rubbish bin and all that is in it is garbage. If I look at the materialistic things and I am spellbound by them and I want to attain them and I want to keep them and I live for them and by them and with them, is this not idol worship of some sort? So, my friend, we need to train our mind to despise worldly things and only to covet and to actually look for spiritual perfection. Have a look at another example in Scripture. The Bible tells us in Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verse 32, he says, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Or in other translations, he who rules a city. So in other words, if you rule your own spirit, it's much better than ruling a whole city. You're better than ruling a whole city. Do I implant this in my mind by controlling my, ang- my anger? Do I know that actually controlling my anger, my anger is actually strength and not weakness? It's easy to respond to angry words with angry words or to aggression with aggression back. That's the easy way. That's the way of the weak. But to control my anger and not to respond in the same angry way 
is actually the difficult way and the way of the strong and the mighty. So I need to implant in my mind this concept of turning the other cheek. And this is not cowardice, but it's actually courage. You say it's impossible to be done. How can a person live like this? But I say to you, it can be done. A real story. This story happened actually in the 90s. When a monk went out to Cairo to do some necessary repairs to some equipment for the monastery that belonged to the monastery. And in one of the narrow streets in Cairo there, um, the car that he was driving actually scratched another car that was parked. And he inquired about who the owner of the other car is. He apologized to him and he offered to pay for the, uh, for the repairs and so forth. But this owner of this other car was actually a fanatic. And he saw that this was a good chance to vent his hatred towards Christians. So he started to abuse this monk verbally and then raised his hand and slapped him on the cheek. All this monk did was simply just turn the other cheek. And of course this man, this made the man freeze in his footsteps. The man was taken by surprise and he started to cry and to apologize to the monk. And he, used to, and he said to him, they tell us that you are bad people, but you are actually better than I am. You are better than us. And then when he started to calm down a bit, he started to ask the monk and he said, what brings you to Cairo? What brings you out of your monastery? And when the monk told him about the repairs that he needed to have done to the uh, equipment of the monastery, the, the man told him that he has a business that actually fixes these things and repairs these things. He did not only repair these things for free, but he actually asked the monk to promise him that every time he needed repairs that he would go there and nowhere else. Turning the other cheek actually brings blessings. And like one of the fathers actually said, when you turn the other cheek, you show them the side that is actually still got, got goodness in it. It's still unhurt. You're showing them the side of Christ. You're showing them the goodness of Christ. I don't think Christ desired that we become punching bags. That's not the meaning of it. But Christ wants us to show this other person what goodness is all about, to try to replace in their wicked mind what evil is all about. And you're showing them Christ in that regard. One more example. St. Paul tells us in Philippians 1.23, For I am hard-pressed between the two having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And again, in Philippians 1.21, for, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do I implant these meanings in my mind? Do I implant in my mind that death is actually a gain? It's not a loss. Do I actually fathom that in my mind? Do I actually understand to the, that to depart and to be with Christ, this is far better? Have I trained my mind to, to covet and to go for the things that Scripture speaks of when it says that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, neither has the heart of man comprehended? Things of eternity. Have I got the spiritual understanding of the true meaning of life and death? Or are they just words that I use and that's it? You see, my dear friend, this is what the discipline of the mind is all about. Again, let me recap our homework for this week. Two simple things. That I need to protect my mind from harmful and unprofitable knowledge and to plant 
or implant into my mind spiritual knowledge. <coughs> Pretty easy. We're already on the road to Christian perfection. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. Happy to discuss any point a little bit further or to have questions or, or to hear your comments. came to me and he said to me, Abuna, is the stocks wrong? I said, no, stocks are not wrong. He goes, um, because I spent a fair bit of time on it. And I said, but it's not wrong. I said, oh, by the way, how much time do you spend on it? And he said, oh, about 12 hours a day. 12 hours a day. He's in front of his computer and looking at stocks. I'm talking about excessive here. Of course, to know what is happening around us is not wrong. But excessively, I think that takes away a lot from us. Apparently, they say that um, the most uh, watched show or news show uh, in history was the O.J. Simpson uh, court case. Imagine people sitting, hearing to call proceedings for a court case. And this court case went on for months. I don't know. The, the way I look at it is that our mind is limited. God knows that this, this space here is limited. He knows that there's only a certain capacity. Why should I fill it excessively with all these things when I can fill it with other important things? Sure, I need to know what's going on in the world. I, I'm, I, you know, I live in this world. I'm part of this world, so I need to understand what's happening around me. But I'm talking when it becomes excessive, that's when it starts to hurt me. I suppose drawing the line is that it doesn't take away my spiritual uh, and and, uh, heavenly wisdom as well. So if that exists, sure, I can add the other wisdom to it. But if the other wisdom is going to overtake spiritual wisdom or heavenly wisdom, then I'm losing out. So I I wish we all had the mind capacity of somebody like Pope Shenouda. Again, my apologies for having to put up with me for another eight weeks. There's only more eight weeks to go. So we finished one, and then um, God willing, we'll continue in the next eight weeks. And uh, we will look at this journey together and hopefully take something out of it. Do you remember the two points that we need to take away with us? What was the first point? Remove unnecessary or harmful or unprofitable knowledge. And... Implant in your mind spiritual knowledge. Absolutely. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.
I'm happy to send uh, the notes that I've got to Marco, and if there's an email um, for the whole group or something like that, I'm not sure how the uh, the group runs, but yeah, I, I urge you to also look at a beautiful book called Practical Spirituality, which is all this is contained in, um, in a much more eloquent way than I've spoken about it. So.